BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, a group of indigenous recruits trained to become Navajo Nation police officers. But their challenges extend beyond the academy. We'll discuss the HBO original series, Navajo Police, Class 57. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hey, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hey, Laura. Hey, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hey, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. So, Kevin, I stayed away from the temptation to call you my brother in that intro. It's There's an inside joke. Are you impressed? Yeah. Very good. Very yes, good. We have a new listener named Kayla. Uh-huh. Uh, who's getting a lot of crap online for having thought you were my brother uh, when we met her in Dallas. But, um, you know, you're not. No, sometimes it feels like it, though. <laughs> yeah. Like when I go in for a kiss and you just turn. For me, too. Yeah. For me, oh, too. Oh, wow. Ouch. <laughs> well, we have um, a lot to do on this show. So, so quickly, should we just talk about what we're going to be talking about at upcoming podcasts? Yeah. On Thursday, we're going to be talking about the new hit podcast from Dateline NBC. It's called Murder in Apartment 12. All right. Well, there's something that we wanted to just talk about briefly at the beginning of the show. And then Kevin will talk about what we're going to talk about it more where people can hear it. And um, do you want to tee that up, Kevin? Yeah. The Crime Writers On issued a statement last week regarding Patrick Hines. We are troubled by allegations of a toxic workplace, abusive behavior and racially problematic comments by Patrick Hines, founder of the Obsessed Network. These allegations surfaced in a recent article and are being corroborated by current and past employees and associates of the network, as well as in emails, text messages, and Slack conversations reviewed by members of our team. Our personal experiences are consistent with these allegations. No one should be subjected to a workplace culture or even a professional friendship that makes them feel unsafe, unseen, or undervalued. Nor should a victim's race be a determinative factor in story selection. 
Patrick's lack of response to fan complaints and his handling of certain events that unfolded at Obsessed Fest, an event held in part to promote the Obsessed Network, were not in alignment with our values. We strive to put our listeners first, especially when it comes to their critical feedback, concerns, accessibility, and safety. As podcasters who have frequently commented on toxic behavior within the industry, it would be wrong to stay quiet in this case. We were rightfully challenged to explain why Rebecca and Kevin did not withdraw from Obsessed Fest 2003. We ultimately decided if our fans were spending money to meet us there, we would commit to be there as well. Laura and Toby were not invited to either Obsessed Fest event. One should not build their brand on calling people garbage while repeatedly causing harm to colleagues, friends, and subordinates. Nor should they call their listeners family while minimizing their concerns and refusing to engage with fans who feel taken advantage of financially. It is our hope Patrick will reflect on his actions and that he will take professional and personal responsibility for the pain we believe he has caused others in his workplace and the podcast community. And it's signed, Rebecca Lavoie, Kevin Flynn, Laura Bricker, and Toby Ball. Okay, we should mention two things. One is that we have a much longer discussion about this topic and the people involved in the events involved for free on our Patreon feed. You can find that at patreon.com slash partners in crime media that is outside our paywall. And two, we're taping this episode on November 1st, 2023. And as of this taping, the Obsessed Network, Patrick Hines and his husband, Steve Tipton, they are the founders of that network, have not released any substantive statements that have advanced this story in any way prior to uh, that episode being taped or this discussion happening. So we should just mention that. Right, Kevin? Yeah. And just to say that we all have had personal experiences and that we're going to get in. I say we're going to get into that because we haven't recorded that episode that's already out. So if um, you want to get... <laughs> space time continuum of yeah, podcasting. We're coming to you from the past. <laughs> so, yeah, it, we're going to talk sort of personally about how we got there in our decisions, how the four of us came together to come together and talk about this. And like you said... We've talked about bad behavior in other parts of uh, the industry, and it would be wrong for us to not uh, discuss it now. All right. Well, we have a uh, really interesting series to talk about. I would just like to do that and do the business that we usually do, which is critical reviews of things in case you're new to the program. Pretty critical review, if you ask me. Yeah. And I'll tell you, uh, I think we have a lot of new listeners and I'd like to welcome you to Crime Writers On, the podcast on which we review things. So let's get to it and review the thing we're going to be reviewing. Kevin, let's drop that first clip right now, shall we? Do it. Leading off. We do what we need to to help each other. But with all the crimes that happen here on the reservation, people feel they don't have any place to turn to for help. The Navajo Nation is the only tribe that runs its own police academy, training officers for an understaffed force patrolling the largest reservation in the United States. The latest class of about two dozen Navajo recruits must go through a rigorous 28-week boot camp to prepare them for the rigors of the job. What's the expectation that we're going to graduate how many? Sir, 14, sir. 14. And 14 is not enough to provide any kind of decent relief to the bodies that are working the streets right now. But Class 57 begins to dwindle with recruits dropping out or being dismissed for misconduct. 
Yet those who graduate find themselves unprepared for the emotional reality of patrolling a reservation filled with poverty, addiction, and violence, which mirrors their own experiences growing up Navajo. He was kind of displaying, like, forgetfulness. He would be just talking to him, and he would just be blank. He was having, like, nightmares. He just started yelling in his sleep. The HBO original documentary series, Navajo Police Class 57, takes us inside the academy of a police force desperately trying to fill its ranks and into the complicated lives of those seeking to wear the uniform. It reveals how the NPD is a microcosm of the Navajo Nation itself, revealing its history, uncertain future, and its resiliency. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about significant plot points from Navajo Police Class 57. So if you want to remain spoiler free and get our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Now, Toby, you made an observation that I couldn't stop thinking about the entire time I was watching this, and that is how young these police recruits are. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, in the two dozen or so people who start in this program, I mean, there's a few people who are sort of, you know, in college, you call non-traditional students, like people who've had other experiences and have decided to join the police or try to join the police. But the, you know, I don't know if like half or a a substantial uh, percentage of them are like, clearly like this is the first chance that they have to apply just because of their age. And they just seem so young. I mean, I assume they're just right out of high school. And that apparently, so you're watching this and they're going through all this stuff and it's very sort of, you know, boot camp like situation. And I was thinking it then, but then when they actually, at the end, when they get out and they're, they're going sort of on a little bit more than ride alongs, you know, they're, they're sort of being trained in the field as sort of the second stage of their training and they're interacting with people in distress or, or whatever. You're like, my God, this kid is like 18 or 19 years old. Like, this is a lot. So, I mean, I, I, I think this is something that's been thought about a lot in terms of military settings, certainly. But, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, on the Navajo Reservation, which is just, it's just huge, right? And they talk a lot about how they're understaffed. And that at times, your backup could be 45 minutes or an hour away. So, a lot of times, these people are just, they are on their own. And I was just thinking... It's a lot. I mean, your brain hasn't even fully developed at that stage. And, you know, these uh, former trainees are just going to be constantly exposed to trauma day after day after day after day without anybody there to help them kind of process it. Like even leaving, like having somebody else in the car to talk it through. So, yeah, it really struck me. One of the things that struck me, Laura, was like the difference between what I think of as like the typical profile of somebody who's not Navajo Nation going to the Navajo Police Department, like that we're accustomed to, like maybe wants to wants to go into like a state police department. Typically, you see like a young person who, um, you know, might have a background in like a criminal justice, like associate's degree or might have come out of the military. There's sort of a type, you know what I'm talking about? And here we have for lack of a better word, we have a, a bunch of like very disparate people. Some of them, they say, have like never run a mile or whatever. And they're just they're kind of coming from all walks of life from inside, you know, the Navajo Nation. And it really strikes me that like this is a real opportunity for them. But at the same time, they just seem like they kind of don't know what they're getting into. And they're getting into a lot. 
Oh, yeah. And and I think it's honestly, I feel like they're getting into this like insurmountable task. Like, I don't feel like they're, I mean, what was the goal to get 500 new officers in a certain number of years? And in this, how many actually graduated? They started with what, 28 and got down to 10? Yeah. But you have these people coming into this, like you said, from different backgrounds. I mean, you have some of the recruits who remember officers coming to their own house when their parents were fighting, when there was domestic violence in their house. You have the woman who had been, you know, abuse victim herself, whose ex-boyfriend who abused her told her she'd never be able to do this, coming in a little bit later in life. And then again, it was just like when, what Toby was saying about, you know, the young nature of a lot of these recruits going in. People going in that actually had criminal backgrounds themselves and for whatever reason, still thinking they were going to apply and get onto this police force and and seeming like maybe they did have good intentions, but again, just not knowing what they were getting into. And then, I mean, I think we'll talk about the training method here, which was very different than what I would think, you know, if you're going to go join the state police in New Hampshire, I can't imagine no. this sort of training regimen happening that happened to these recruits. Like, oh, it does, though. At not police like, standards and training? Not to this degree. Camp style? They take their clothes out of the backpack and throw them on the ground and scream at them. And that's that's off, That's military officer training. That's first is day. Is it really? God, I'm so naive. <laughs> As Toby was alluding to, you know, there's a military style boot camp and it's very common. And, you know, the idea is that it it breaks you down for the purpose of building you up. And it's been shown to be effective in military settings and for military training, because the larger purpose is to get soldiers to trust each other and work together when their lives are on the line. And it's interesting here because like you point out, these guys are really a lot of times working on their own. I mean, you see in some calls, there's a bunch of people together, but that's part of it. And it isn't until towards the end when your Sergeant Williams elicits some feedback from the recruits that they say they would like to hear some more encouraging things earlier on, because as we've seen and talked about this, you know, you don't have to come in and break them down. They already appear to be broken down quite a bit by life. Yeah. Right. So, you know, shaving their heads in the military and making them wear the same clothes. And like that goes back centuries. Right. Does it work in this? I would. It seems like it's an obvious choice for a training method, but it seems like, you know, when they start getting into it, it it is also designed to separate. I don't want to say the good from the bad, but those who have the right stuff to complete the training and then to go out and be effective police officers. It's supposed to sort of like get through and okay, who can do it, who can't do it, who's really who really wants to do it. And they didn't really go like I don't think super deep into people's motivations, but some people it just seemed like, well, this would be a steady job. Where right now I'm, you know, some days we we don't have, we don't get gas for the generator. We're just you know run, running on on wood. So it's a really different situation. But as far as the training, the you know the overall sort of training philosophy that goes into an awful lot. One of the most interesting characters to me was um, Chauvin Levi, who had been through the the training before. And then yeah. he sort of emerges as like the leader in the class because he knows what's happening. But also he provides that sort of like a softer voice that the recruits need and like gels them into a team to begin with. But 
I have to say, like, sort of the brutality of it really struck me because I'm not 100% sure that this is the way to get 500 new police officers if that's the goal. I don't know. Toby, what were you going to say? I mean, they do. They talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the imposition of, for want of a better term, like Western or American culture on Navajo culture. And this seems just like another aspect of that is that you're basically saying we're going to run the U.S. military program on you to turn you into a cop. And, you know, obviously they're making decisions in this documentary about what they show or what they don't show, but there didn't seem to be a whole lot of sort of like, this is what's unique about your job here. And this is how we take into account sort of cultural norms or whatever as being different from just sort of out of the box sort of police or military training. I mean, you see little tiny bits of it, right? There's one point in which a guy is being shown, like, I don't know if he's practicing or just showing that he can introduce himself in Navajo, in the Navajo language. So mm-hmm. if he was meeting with an elder to like try and make them feel more comfortable. But the the rest of it just seems like pretty straightforward, you know, the kind of stuff that, you know, friends of mine who went into the military were talking about, oh, yeah, you get pepper sprayed and then somebody punches you in the stomach and then you have yeah. to like defuse a bomber. You know, I, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that's not exactly it, but it just all seemed like it was straight from that manual. I completely agree with you. And I found myself thinking, Toby, and to- Kevin and I had like a little debate about this that I, I was like, I'm going to save it for the podcast. <laughs> uh, it is a very, very American white supremacist standard, right? To become a cop, to be going to the military. That's that's the system that it was created in. And like one of the standards is you can never have done anything criminal in your entire life to become a cop, right? And the standard here, you know, the standard sort of outside the nation is that it disqualifies you because then you're seen as dishonest. It gets you on New Hampshire known as the Lori list, right? Where you're never going to be seen as, you can never give testimony in a trial. They're disqualifying a lot of people who might be really good at this job because of their experience on this on this reservation. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, what if they viewed this a little bit more holistically, a little bit more from like a community policing perspective, which I think they are trying to do. Like, I, I don't want to sound like I think they have all bad intentions here because I think that the people leading this program, it's very clear on many occasions that they're taking what they have, the tools they have and You know, they do feel really fucking bad when some of these recruits wash out. But I I, I just feel like the system itself is not designed well for this particular community. That's, I just, that just kept striking me well, again and again because well, they have a different criminal legal system too. Yeah, but let, let me just sort of take the counterpoint there. Now, you actually did, you, you alluded to it, your organization, New Hampshire Public Radio, did a podcast called The List. In Most states have something like this, sometimes a really secret. We saw that in Philadelphia DA where they have a list of officers who have been shown to be dishonest and then would make bad witnesses. Right. Because now... But if someone got a DUI but, in high school, is that being dishonest? Well, certain things. Rebecca, right. look at Pettigrew. Right. We have this one recruit. She's named Cheyenne Pettigrew. She's a police dispatcher. She's going to the academy. And also working as a Navajo Nation police dispatcher. So when I'm sitting there in dispatch and there's no backup or everyone's on call and there's another call for help, there's no one to send and it's really frustrating. <laughs> so she gets drummed out for what seems like a really silly reason. So suppose she becomes an officer and she goes on the stand in a very important murder case or any shit thing. The first thing the defense attorney says, Officer Pettigrew, have you ever lied to your commanding officer about anything? 
Right. And she'd have to say yes. And they'd say, okay, well then I'll, why should we believe that you, you know, you found the bloody glove or right. whatever. Right. That's it. What I'm not is, talking about pedigree want though. Them? I'm not talking about pedigree. Well, she's an example of the whole thing you're talking about, Correct. Rebecca. I, I get it. But I, I just feel like they're, they're talking about. And the thing, and I'll just finish and I'll, I'll just give it back to you. The thing we've said in podcast after podcast after podcast, the root of the problem most of the time seems to be an officer who is not living up to the ideal of what it's supposed to be what they're doing they're misleading people we've got a podcast we're going to be talking about on thursday where there's an officer who's like messing up and it seems like we're always saying there needs to be higher standard higher quality candidates higher quality people so the idea that like well they just need people so anybody will do i didn't say that well okay but that's but that's but i i see what you're saying kevin because I mean, they are sort of in that situation. I mean, it's like there's a desperation here because they have this goal and literally they cannot attract people that actually are making it through. So I think they do at some part. They're just like, whatever, we'll just take anybody because like it's just such a desperate situation. Like when you follow along with that older officer and see the type of calls he's going on just back to back to back to back, they need help. Part of me is like, you need any warm body at that point, even though, yes, you need to have standards. But it's like, I guess I just don't see how they're going to get ahead of this tide. But then also going back to that military style training, and they're saying they're applying stress through this hazing because this is what they're going to experience in the field. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what they're experiencing in the field. But unfortunately, if you kind of watch this go forward, the police are now not necessarily becoming enforcers and saviors of the law, they are also perpetrators because of the way that, like, if you just watch how they, some of them just haul these guys and throw them, I mean, because it just, this situation, this impossible situation that they're dealing with there. I mean, did you guys read about how, like, at one point they were telling people to just get private security because they couldn't get enough officers out right, there? right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's difficult because financing is a big thing. Right. Well, we, we can't do what we do if we don't have like support from our friends at Patreon. Oh, we're going, <laughs> to, the, are we going to the business section right now. It's the business <laughs> section, everybody. What a what a graceful transition, Kevin. OK, yeah. our new listeners are like, what the hell just happened? You should join us at Patreon dot com. slash partners in every crime show. Media. We graceful have transitions. We had lots of people say that they're reallocating their patron budget and we would love to have you uh, with us on Patreon what you're going to get right now you can get for free in our Patreon feed that discussion we were talking about regarding the situation with Patrick Hines and the Obsessed Network but we also have great stuff like the Crime Writers on After Show and we're really changing it up because after the show we're going to give you a new discussion and it's going to be all about Rebecca's 50th birthday and how she went to Disney World and found out she is a roller coaster person and you are not and I am not yes <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> we have other great podcasts exclusive. Toby's face. He's like, I can't fucking wait. I, 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 I hate roller coasters. <laughs> and you would hate what happened I don't to Kevin. Even, I don't even like hearing people talk about then it. You, <laughs> I, I couldn't even do the shoe ride at Storyland without wait getting seasick. Wait till you hear what oh, happened to Kevin. <laughs> my God. We have so many exclusive podcasts. By the way, you can get episodes of Crime Writers on early and ad free at Patreon. And we also have... The Leave It to Bricker podcast in which Laura Bricker explores mysteries, tries to solve mysteries in her quaint AF town of Exeter, New Hampshire. This time, Laura Bricker, you're using goats. I can't even believe people are doing this. People are like, what the fuck is this show about? (laughs) She's using goats to get rid of the poison ivy with mixed Uh results. Mm. 
with mixed results. Yeah. New listeners are like, this is incredible. But now you can go cuddle a baby goat. They just mm. had some baby goats born at the farm. <laughs> yeah. So goat yoga. that might be next. Yeah. No, this isn't even goat yoga. Oh, it it's isn't. just cuddle. No, it's another. There's so many goat activities. Cuddle a baby goat. Just go Cuddle them. A cuddle puddle with a goat. All should, right. we, should we get yeah. some context that we live in New Hampshire? Should yeah. we give that context? It's context. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Also, we have a podcast called Marry with Podcasts in which Rebecca and I dole out advice. Great advice. Re- great, great re- relationship advice, life advice. In the latest episode, we have one listener who says that she wonders whether or not her kid's classroom teacher is making the proper accommodations for him. And we think that maybe they could do better. Okay. Also, uh, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club. That podcast, Toby discusses, he has guests on, and they just do a, a really great discussion on a book. Toby, let's see, in October, your book was, was it a Death on W Street? Yeah, Death on W Street. It's about Seth Rich, who was a DNC staffer who was uh, killed in the early morning hours on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and then sort of all these conspiracy theories that that kind of branched out after this. Now, it's not too late to start reading your book for uh, November. That book is called The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures. Correct. It's got to have a subtitle with rule of threes, right? It's got to be true yeah. story of blah, obsession, and the movies or something like that. Yeah. And podcast festivals. And podcast festivals. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, the guy, you think about Thomas Edison as being the inventor of motion pictures, but uh, this is kind of making the case that it was actually this French guy who, on the eve of like sort of showing his new invention, disappeared. Ooh. And that's Ooh. as far as I've gotten in the book he disappeared. so far. So, okay, we'll finish it up. Remember, if you join at the deep dive level, you can also join Toby and partake in that live recording and uh, check it out before the audio podcast drops that's in right. the feed. All right, so Kevin, one thing I also want to say. Yeah. We have a free newsletter. We do, yes. Sign up for it. It's awesome. You can go to crimewriterson.com and sign up for our free newsletter, find out what's happening on the show, behind the scenes, and of course, get pictures that we uh, include that are fun. All right. Yes, and we promise we only sell your email addresses to sketchy pharmacies. No, we don't. We don't sell your email addresses to anybody, but... Does that send the business section, Kevin? I guess so. That sends the business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out right now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Chapter one, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wafer helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. 
Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. So, Toby, there is this very interesting thread in this series where we see this repeated clip. It's not repeated, but we see this training happening in the police academy around domestic violence. And they just keep kind of laying that over again and again. Later, there's sort of a payoff to that so to speak, uh, in the series, it kind of comes together. We kind of learn why we've been uh, watching this scene kind of unfold. What do you think about the way that they sort of infuse that thread throughout the series? Well, at first, and I think it's legit this way too, it's that it's trying to show that the Navajo reservation suffers from these symptoms of poverty, right? And, and domestic violence is, is one of those symptoms. Often children of domestic violence handle conflict with aggression. Open the door! Walk out of here! Come out! Their response to taking care of a situation is also violence. Put your hands up! Fuck you! So it's just a cycle. It goes in a circle. But then there's a point at which, I think it's the end of the second episode, where they kind of have this sort of, it's not really exactly a montage, but it's sort of drawing this very clear comparison between sort of signs and methods of domestic violence and what they're going through as police trainees. And so they're talking about like humiliation, right? And then they show a couple of times when somebody was humiliated and I don't know, like alienation. I mean, there, there, there's several things that, that have both domestic violence and these training in, in common. I wasn't 100% sure what we were supposed to think about that when it was over, to be honest with you. Like it kind of ended. And I was like, is this just like a, a really scathing like take on this whole training program? Is, is that what we're supposed to take away from it or, or not? But it was, you know, it definitely gives you some pause for thought. Well, I was floored by it, Toby. I thought it was it was brilliant to overlay that lesson, the classroom lesson uh, about domestic violence with, you know, the professional and social and historical breakdown because it continues on beyond showing clips of the recruits. It starts showing clips, uh, you know, from historical, you know, instances where you I mean, you see. I don't know if it's Ulysses S. Grant, but, you know, the Union Army and the whole manifest destiny and also how that also plays into the symptoms and the patterns of domestic abusers. And at first, like, when you know, when they're bringing up these clips again, it's like the same clip. I'm like, oh, well, lazy editing. And then it wasn't until I realized, like you said, they are just showing, you know, reminding you of the things that they've been through and that how it all fits together like that. I just thought it was unexpected and I thought it was elegantly executed. I'm not going to forget that. What do you think, Laura, about this like sort of theme of cycles in the series? I mean, one of the things that struck me again and again is one of the way that we're sort of shown it, not told mm-hmm. about it, but shown it is just like the ever present decay that we see on the reservation. Like even this building where they're doing the training is like crumbling. You know, there's not a single shot that we see on the reservation where it's like something looks like it's not not in good shape. Like everything is mm. in bad shape. Everything is like sort of poorly maintained. Everything is, it's sort of suffering. Peeling paint. Yeah. Says everything so much. is just sort of suffering from lack of care, lack of funding, lack of resources. And then of course these human beings are also suffering from the same things. And that is a theme too. this sort of cyclical violence, cyclical abuse. How do, how do you think that the series handles that? 
That was really well done. It was, I think, really poignant in certain areas, especially where you have that one recruit who you, you kind of see how they had been living. And you hear his wife talking about how um, it's like flashes back to Vermont, but how they had been like using a generator and they were like, <laughs> they didn't have like electricity. And, you know, now they, they did have this, but they were still carrying their wood. Um, you see that same recruit later now struggling with dealing with the pressure of the job coming home and taking it out on his wife. And you see that sort of pattern continuing, which, you know, he's trying to sort of come out of that pattern that he grew up in, but now he's falling back into it in a different way. Uh, I think if you looked at just any of the mobile homes that they were going in and out of and what it looked like outside, what it looked like inside. You have one of the little kids in one of the scenes. Are you going to take me to child protective services right away? Like that these kids at that age already know that that is an option because that is the world they're living in. There's a kind of just despair permeates this entire area. You have the officer responding to a call about the drunk man. 2.30, do we have a name on the 37 that's unconscious and not responding? Possibly a Fuck. 10-4, code 2. That's my, uh... Older brother. He's just a bad drinker. Again, I just feel like this overwhelming, how do they get ahead of this? And they are using COVID relief funds to try to, you know, give this boost to fund getting more officers. But even if you look at like at the times where they're showing the businesses and like how, you know, these like basically businesses are few and far between because there is so much crime. And you see how ingrained it is. At one point, one of the uh, officers goes out for a domestic violence call and there's an older woman. Okay, so you guys are okay now? Mm. Okay. All right, we're just checking on you, okay? Okay. Anything else happens, call us back, all right? Okay, you have a good day, ma'am. Sure you're all right? Yeah. I'll call you if I need any help later. She's clearly a victim of domestic abuse, but she doesn't want to do anything about it because that's just what she knows and that's just the way that it's always been. And it probably was the way that it was in her household growing up. Do you know what I mean? So it's like you see it so many places throughout this documentary. And by the way, Laura, the officer too. Yeah. The, her reaction to it is when she's talking about it later, yeah. it's really based on like her experience where she's almost like, well, she doesn't want to get out of it. I got out of it, but she doesn't want to get out and of it. Also, right? And yeah. there's also the scene where the woman who's an officer is being abused in the car by the person that they just arrested. Oh, yeah. You know, like they, where he's speaking, yeah. where, the way that he's talking to her. Wouldn't talk to a male officer that way. Yeah. Of course yeah. not. Of course not. It was it was really. Oh, am I, just, am I stating the obvious? <laughs> you didn't. Well, and also going back to what we were talking about before about just the level of like military style training and how they're approaching these calls. Part of it, unfortunately, when you look at the type of crime and the type of situations they're going into, you see them when they go out there and they're like, okay, step away, do this, do that. People are like, fuck you. Like nobody's going to follow their directions in a lot of these cases. 
So they do have to resort to violence, which then just perpetuates it in a different way. So Debbie, what do you think? uh, You have an interesting note here about, you know, what do you think the commonality is between the recruits who the trainees who did make it all the way through the program? What do you think? Oh, I don't know. I I just thought that was an interesting question, which is while you're watching, like you you see them all at the beginning and, and the attrition starts. And I mean, there's people at the beginning who who you kind of identify as like, oh, this guy's probably going to make it. Like, there's some guy whose first name is Centurion, and they show him in this like they they box on their knees, and he's just like pounding the crap out of people. <laughs> and people are talking about how tough he is and stuff. And it's like, oh, okay, well, this guy he looks like he's got what it takes, or you know, whatever cliche you want to say to get through. And spoiler alert, he does not get through. Is he the one who, who, who takes himself out? Drop on request, yeah. 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 So it is kind of interesting because because the people who do make it through are not the ones you'd peg right off. They don't seem like the toughest or in the best shape or seem like the most mentally tough people there, but, th- but they are, right? And you, you kind of see how they get through things for the most part, because, you know, obviously the, the filmmakers don't know who's going to make it when the whole thing started. Yeah. So at the end I was left like wondering, it's like, what do these people have? Like a couple of people were coming because it seemed like one of the few available jobs maybe that they could get. Or they had to leave and work outside the reservation. We heard that over and over right, again. Right. Like I was up in Oregon or I was in California or I was, and then this is this to come back here. This is what I have to do. And then there seemed like, it, you know, at least a couple of the people who made it through were like specifically like, I want to be a police officer. Yeah. And that seemed to play some part in it, too. It's like, I'm not just going through all this shit just to get a job. I'm going mm-hmm. through all this shit to become a police officer. And that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. But I don't know. I mean, the the big thing that they show that that seems like it really is like the last straw for a lot of people is when they spray him in the face with the. Uh, pepper spray and then make them quote unquote arrest somebody and some people can deal with it and some people just you know they just can't yeah and uh and that seems to weed a lot of people out and if i was actually going to say you know if you want to keep more of these recruits like maybe you just skip that part and move on because that seemed like that was the part that really that seems like an unlikely scenario to actually happen in the field (laughs) you know i don't disagree with you i get it but you probably could have had another three or four if you hadn't gone through that exercise. So. Exactly, exactly. And keep in mind, too, they're making them do all these things in the desert, like where it's a gajillion degrees. They're carrying around these giant jugs of water all the time. Kevin, before we wrap, I know you wanted to talk about one of the uh, prominent people in this series, and that is uh, Sergeant Williams, who's the guy who's running this program. Very, yeah. very, very strong profile this guy has. Just yeah. to, not well, to just just to mention. Well, he is like the one white person on the Navajo Nation. I'm like, oh, not the Navajo Nation, but it, but in the academy. And I'm like, oh shit, white savior. What is going to happen here? But he's like, he's so likable, and he does seem to like really not only have the knowledge and the talent, but also cares about the recruits. And they the filmmakers don't put him at the center of the story. Now, you know, it isn't like, a you know, Dances with Wolves where Kevin Costner brings the the wisdom of the the white world and changes the avatar. Indian, yeah, avatar. Avatar in America. I mean, what he is. I mean, assuming <laughs> the fact that he got that job is because he had, you know, experience teaching elsewhere. I, I don't know. His, so his maybe way, you say of, that's him bringing the white knowledge or whatever. I, it but, is. but, you know, it's it's. 
he's not a fictional character. He's, no. he's there. And I think that he also kind of understands so when Chauvin Levi is not becoming successful, he starts asking some of the other, you know, uh, training officers, like, what do we do? Are we not asking them the right things? Do we need to start rethinking the way we're training them? And that's when he has this really interesting conversation with one of the recruits about, for lack of a better term, he's like trying to find out what makes Navajo recruits tick. And you have to find out a little more about, you know, when, we, when it's coupled with some of the other things that we've seen about domestic violence and the way that, you know, the commonalities of their childhood and their lives that, you know, it's something that he cannot relate to unless he's informed by it. How long do you think he'd been working in this position? I don't know. Because I was like, this is just occurring to you now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I had the same question. Well, at least one class, one other class, because he knew everybody. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's just like, why wouldn't you like... I kind of feel like part of the, and I don't mean to get all institutional on this, but one of the things that should be going on with this is at the end of it, you have like exit interviews with the cadets and you're like, how'd it go? What should we do differently if the mm-hmm. next class, you know, we only had 30% retention. What, what can we do to make that better? Maybe don't spray me in the face with fucking pepper spray. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't <laughs> spray me in the face with pepper spray. That's the first thing I would tell you. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I thought it was super interesting. I, I, I found him to be a sympathetic character. At the same time, I was like, dude, like, how has this not occurred to you before? Right. He was mad at Pettigrew, though, about that Metallica concert. Yeah, I, I don't think he's seen a Metallica concert. He might have a better. <laughs> he doesn't get it. Yeah. yeah. Everybody was pulling for Pettigrew. That's he was mad. Yeah. yeah. He's got no choice. He's got to, he's got to. In many ways, it's like a fictional See, story I, in that way. I, I kind of like, I get it. Like, you can't just like have somebody lie to you to your face and go on. I'm not sure that that's how you weed out people who are willing to plant evidence. And I, I, I don't necessarily see that as being consistent with other kinds of police malfeasance that we kind of run into. I think you can be a really fucking straight arrow person and then do some really messed up stuff once you become a cop because you think you know who did things or whatever. But anyway, that's another conversation. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. 
Wayfair, every style, every home. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Navajo Police Class 57? It's an HBO original documentary series. What do you think, Laura Bricker? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Yeah, this is a big thumbs up. This is one of my favorite things that we have watched in a long time. It was fascinating. It was an issue that you could really relate to as you're watching it. It was really unique. It started right off for me, like the scene setting. We we hear like the radio station with the guys got George Strait on the radio and <laughs> they break into a George Strait song. And we know I like old time country. And then they show this old horse out on the range and and kind of show the scenery of where this is happening. And, you know, so it leads right in in a way that was very compelling but it's it's really just an absolutely heartbreaking and fascinating look at an issue that's a very real issue. And God, it just makes you want something to happen to give some assistance to the Navajo Nation when you see how much they're struggling trying to get a police force up to speed, I guess, up to the the number of police officers where they can actually effectively police this reservation. So I I just, I thought this was super interesting, super well done. And um, I would give it a big thumbs up. What do you think, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Navajo Police Class 57? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big thumbs up as well. You know, this in some ways hits me in the sweet spot. I'm I, I'm just really interested in the way, you know, our, our country and our government deals with and treats in, indigenous nations. You know, at first, I will admit that I was watching and then there's a very early scene. This isn't really a spoiler where these recruits show up and these people are their their trainers are just screaming at them and throwing their stuff around or whatever. And I was like, I don't know if I can handle this. But it, it turns out to be really fascinating. The people who are sort of engaged in that, that you just think are going to be unsympathetic, do like you kind of, you kind of uh, warm up to them. Yeah, I mean, it's a tremendously difficult situation. It's another one of those situations where it's hard to see how it's going to be resolved. The math doesn't seem to to work the way things are set up right now. So yeah, it's it's a big thumbs up for me. Kevin Flynn. It's a big thumbs up for me too. I mean, as we've done over, oh, it's getting close to 500 episodes of Crime Runners On. Wow. Uh, we have seen time and time again, a lot of the problems with policing is... Um, racially based issues. And so this is with the exception of Sergeant Williams, we have everybody here on the force, all these recruits are Navajo, and they're going to be serving a Navajo community. And so it's the closest we can get to a control group. We, we sort of take the racial differences out of it. It still leaves a lot of problems with policing. And for police officers to, to deal with their own mental health, you can prepare them by spraying them in the face with pepper spray in case they get into that situation. But we also see, and I feel like the, the the tone of the whole thing sort of changes in the second half of the third episode when those recruits that graduate start their field training and we sort of do ride-alongs with them and the things that they face. It's still a very difficult job. And I think you have to ask yourself, are we rooting for people because we like them to get this very important, very dangerous, very consequential job? Or are we supposed to be rooting for the people who are best suited for this that are going to advance public safety and if that means having fewer of them of having you know quality over quantity it's a really interesting i don't want to call it a thought experiment because it's real and the the parallels between what happens with the people of their nation and 
sort of the victims, uh, you know, the, the victimology of crime is just, it was sort of laid out in a very interesting, unexpected way. So I, I recommend this to anyone. I'm a thumbs up. I'm a thumbs up too. And Kevin, I'm actually going to take what you said and just change something about it. Yeah. So it is an interesting control group. For me, it's an interesting control group that betrays that the way policing is built, just it doesn't work. It's broken. Like if, you, if you're taking sort of the institution of the way that traditional policing is built and you are trying to put it in a community of people who are, you know, essentially belong to the same nation, but whose land, by the way, we stole and basically created this economy and created this community. And you're basically saying now, hey, use our system to govern yourselves. Okay, good luck with that. We figured out in our own communities that our system does not work. Like, why do we think it's going to work for other people? And if we think we have more of a leveling of some class issues and more of a leveling of some understanding issues, why do we think it's going to work any better? It's not. I mean, they're having having a lot of the same problems. And of course, they're also having huge resource issues because the standards are wild. I don't know. I think this is just a really fascinating documentary. And what I really like about it is that it seems like we all got something very different when we were watching it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's the kind of thing that you can watch and maybe see a story that none of the four of us saw, uh, get your own perspective on. And so I really recommend it. I actually might watch parts of it again that I, I missed. I feel like Toby saw some stuff that I missed. Laura saw some stuff that I missed. It's Navajo Police Class 57, uh, HBO Originals, and I'm giving it a big thumbs up. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, the week. of the week. A 75-year-old Italian woman has won her lawsuit to evict the two men living in her home, her 40 and 42-year-old sons. The mother says her kids are freeloaders and can't get them to move out of her apartment. She's living on her pension and the boys have jobs, but refuse to pay rent or help with housework. It's culturally acceptable in Italy for children to live at home into their 30s. More than 2 million of them do. And the law says parents are obligated to provide for their children. But a judge said, for fuck's sakes, you're in your 40s and it's time to cut the cord. <laughs> the judge called the sons bambocioni, which means big babies. The sons are countersuing, but they have until December 2nd to move out. So panel, these kids are not all right. Why were these mama's boys unwilling to leave home in the first place? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Uh, clearly, no one makes meatballs like mama or tucks them in at night. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Toby? Why were these mama's boys unwilling to leave home in the first place? Xbox. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think, Kevin? <laughs> they, were un- <laughs> they were unwilling to take account of liberty. <laughs> I think, Kevin, it's right there in the question. They were fucking mama's boys, yeah, right? Yeah, mama's, mama's boys. boys. All right, that's going to do it for us. But, Laura Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you and say hi anywhere on the internet, social media, how can they find you? They can find me at Laura Bricker on the Twitter. What about you, Toby Ball? How can you be found on all the platforms? I am at Toby Ball NH on Twitter, and that's it. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? I'm a Kevin P. Flynn. All right. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm finally figuring out how to do stickers and stories and shit at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our incredible community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just go to our Facebook page. There's a pin post to join the group. Just if you know any one of our four names, we will let you in. Get episodes early and ad free and all the stuff we have back there at patreon.com slash partners and crime media. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdett. 
The executive producer of this program is Kevin P. Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet on a New Hampshire basement where we would also risk it all for a chance to see Metallica. Well, often never, never land. On behalf of all the crime writers, That was no. Metallica, right? No. no, yes it was, okay. but not me. Thanks for listening. We will catch you later. Later. It would be wrong for us to not uh, discuss it now. (laughs) Wrong sound effect. (laughs) To talk about it now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.